Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. And this is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, January 27th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at the weather forecast. This coming from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Scattered bursts of snow this morning. More snow likely tomorrow. A small system continues to move east across the area this morning. Snow showers are likely for the morning drive, and while accumulation should stay under one inch, even a little snow can cause issues on the roads. The wind will pick up as well, first from the south and later from the northwest. Plan on highs into the 30s. Tomorrow, another system is on the way, and a general 2 to 5 inches of snow is expected for most areas along and north of I-80. Less than 2 inches is expected south of I-80 at this time. Given the fluffy consistency of this incoming snowfall, patchy blowing snow is possible in rural areas. Colder temperatures will build in on Sunday, likely dropping the wind chill as low as minus 15 by Sunday morning. This cold air will stick around for all of next week, with lows on most nights down below zero. On the front page this morning, we have kind of a contradiction. The lead article says, Black Hawk County crime falls, and then we have one dead in Waterloo stabbing. We also have stories titled, State Error Could Cost Localities Millions, and Meet Back on the Table for Snap. Let's begin by reading the top story on the page, Black Hawk County Crime Fails, Most Serious Crimes at Lowest Level in 15 Years. This story was written by Jeff Reinitz, the Courier's police reporter. Dateline Waterloo. Led largely by a drop in property crimes, crime in rural Black Hawk County was at a record low in 2022, according to figures released by the Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Tony Thompson said crimes are cyclical and often tied to factors beyond law enforcement control. But he'd like to think part of the decline is linked to proactive projects his office has undertaken to address recidivism, keeping people from returning to jail. Quote, We have invested over the years in a multiple of pre- and post-arrest diversion and criminal justice programming efforts that hopefully have started taking root. Time will tell, because if the results are able to be replicated year upon year, we know we are on the right track, Thompson said. While in jail, inmates have access to faith-based re-entry programming, life skills programming, drug and alcohol abuse programming, and education geared toward obtaining a GED, Thompson said. The Department of Correctional Services has the, quote, swift, fair, and certain program designed to quickly address probation violations, and the court system has specialized drugs courts for addiction. The Sheriff's Office crime numbers pertain mainly to cases in the county's unincorporated areas and not inside the city limits of Waterloo, Cedar Falls, and Evansdale, which maintain their own statistics. Overall indexed crimes, homicide, robbery, rape, aggravated assault, burglary, larceny, and auto theft were at their lowest in at least 15 years, according to Courier Archives. In 2022, sheriff's deputies 
worked 76 index crimes, compared with 136 in 2021. Reported sexual assaults were down to 11 from 19 the prior year. Burglary was down to 24 from 51 a year earlier. And larceny, a fancy word for theft, was down to 34 reports compared with 52 in 2021. Vehicle theft was down by a half, 6 in 2022, from 13 in 2021, according to the sheriff's office numbers. Aggravated assaults remained steady at one each year, and there were no homicides or burglaries reported in 2021 and 2022. Thompson noted that the plunge in crime was accompanied by a dip in overall calls for service for deputies. Those were counted at 8,230 in 2021, down to 6,888 in 2022. Quote, Some of it is less officer-initiated work, a smaller workforce due to officer shortages, which we continue to combat and which is improving, Thompson said. Even so, bookings at the county jail were at a three-year high, 6,130 people in 2022, up from 4,952 in 2020. But the jail's average daily population was down slightly, 250 people last year from 262 the year before. Now the next story was also written by Jeff Reinitz, One Dead in Overnight Stabbing. And the story begins with a photograph of the 500 block of Dawson Street, and we see yellow police tape across the road and patrol cars parked on either side of that tape. There's a small amount of snow on the ground and on the roofs of the houses in that neighborhood. Dateline Waterloo. A person died in an apparent early morning stabbing in Waterloo on Thursday. The identity of the deceased and other details weren't immediately available. Waterloo police were called to a report of a possible vandalism in the 500 block of Dawson Street around 1.45 a.m. Thursday. When they arrived, they found a parked vehicle with a slashed tire and a man who was suffering from stab wounds on the sidewalk. Officers began performing CPR until paramedics with Waterloo Fire Rescue arrived a short time later. The man was taken to Unity Point Health Allen Hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. During the investigation, detectives determined the stabbing occurred during a confrontation involving the deceased and others outside a home in the area. Officers have interviewed people involved in the incident. The investigation into the stabbing is ongoing, and anyone with information is asked to contact the Waterloo Police Detective Division at area code 319-291-4340, extension number 3. The slaying is the city's first homicide for 2023. The next story comes from the Curious Des Moines Bureau, journalist Tom Barton. State error could cost localities millions. The rush is on at the Capitol to fix a previous oversight, Dateline Des Moines. A rush is on in the Iowa legislature to fix an oversight resulting from a previously passed property tax reform package that could mean, potentially, millions of dollars in lost revenue 
in the coming months for some Iowa cities. Lawmakers in 2013 passed a property tax cut package that, among other provisions, gradually lowered property taxes on multifamily residential units like apartments, nursing homes, mobile home parks, and manufactured home communities to where they would be taxed at the same rate as all residential property by 2022. And in 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law including multi-residential properties in the residential property class beginning in the 2022 assessment year for taxes due in the fall of 2023 and the spring of 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a property tax classification. In doing so, however, no corresponding changes were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community colleges, and other taxing entities. The result? A higher percentage for residential property as a whole because former multi-residential was included, said Julie Royson with the Iowa Department of Revenue's Local Government Services Division. She said the department didn't catch the oversight until October, when staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. The rate is set annually by the department and is designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3%. If aggregate property values for homes and farms increase more than 3%, their taxable values are, quote, rolled back so that the total increase statewide is 3%. With former multi-residential erroneously included, the staff calculated a rollback rate of 56.5% compared to what should be 54.6%. While that could be an unexpected relief for taxpayers, it could mean local governments have to scramble to find money to support the public services they planned. To fix the oversight, the governor's office and the Department of Revenue filed a bill in the Senate that carves out all former multi-residential properties from calculating the property tax rollback rate for 2022 residential property tax assessments. With cities and counties in the throes of setting their budgets to take effect July 1st, The error by the state has thrown the process into disarray and may cause cities, counties, and school boards to either lose millions of dollars they planned on or raise tax rates more than they wanted, and the clock's ticking to make a fix. In order for the state and county auditor to have the necessary time to administer the levying of property taxes, cities and counties are required to have their budgets approved and certified to the state and county auditor by March 31st. School districts are required to have their budgets set by April 15th. The bill is scheduled for a subcommittee hearing on Monday. Quote, it is important for taxpayers and local governments to have clarity regarding the residential and multi-residential assessment rollback, said Senator Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs, who chairs the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Dawson said the committee, quote, will begin to evaluate the governor's proposal 
and continue our work to protect the taxpayer, unquote. The bill, if passed, takes effect upon enactment and requires the Department of Revenue within two business days to issue an amendment order certifying to the auditor of each county the percentages of actual value at which all property is subject to taxation. Quote, my initial take on this is that it will be very detrimental to local communities, said Senator Pam Jochum, a Democrat from Dubuque and ranking member of the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy. One county auditor, Jochum said, told her the bill would lead that county to increase its tax rate 29 cents to maintain current tax dollars, if not county revenue would drop by $1.1 million. Now, in a story written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, meet back on the table for SNAP. Critics say ID verification work requirements are too burdensome. Dateline Des Moines, with meat purchases now back on the table, the debate at the Iowa Capitol over proposed additional restrictions on food assistance program known as SNAP turned to more familiar territory, eligibility, and work requirements. Republican state lawmakers advanced legislation Thursday that for the SNAP program, a joint operation of the state and federal governments would require an extra layer of identity verification for recipients, require the state to examine records to ensure recipients are still eligible, and require recipients to work at least 20 hours a week, with some exceptions. Technically, the bill also still contains a provision that would limit SNAP users to only foods approved for the WIC program for expectant mothers, which would eliminate meat, fish, poultry, nuts, and many cooking essentials. But Republicans say they plan to amend it and block only candy and soda, except for zero-calorie sodas. Despite that pledge to constrain the food restrictions, the proposal found plenty of detractors at its first legislative hearing at the Capitol. Of the 40 organizations that are formally registered as either supporting or opposing the bill, 37 opposed the proposal, while just three support it, according to state lobbying records. Opponents include food assistance and charity groups like food banks, parochial groups, and healthcare organizations. The three supporters are groups that advocate for limited government and spending and lower taxes. United Way of Iowa Advocacy Officer Dave Stone said the organization opposes the legislation because of, quote, a number of provisions that will create additional barriers for eligible families who need these benefits, unquote. Cindy Pedersen, a lobbyist for the Iowa Food Bank Association, called the proposal for new testing of a SNAP recipient's financial worth very burdensome. Pedersen said Iowa Department of Health and Human Services Director Kelly Garcia has, quote, done a good job reducing administrative burdens in the department and reducing the error rate in programs like SNAP, unquote. She also noted that Pennsylvania in 2015 ditched its asset test for SNAP after a three-year pilot program that saw administrative costs outweigh any reductions in spending. By eliminating the asset test, the state saved $3.5 million annually, state officials said, 
according to news reports. Quote, many states have moved away from asset limit because it's an administrative burden, Pedersen said. Proponents of tighter restrictions on food assistance eligibility say the added measures are needed to rein in program costs and ensure that people who are receiving the assistance are the ones who genuinely need it. SNAP is funded by the federal government and jointly administered by the federal and state governments to individuals and families who meet income restrictions. Iowa's share of the program's administrative costs in the 2020 budget year was $22 million, and its average administrative costs of $27.84 per case per month was 18th lowest among U.S. states, according to federal data. House Republicans moved the SNAP bill just two days after approving a $345 million in new state spending on private school financial aid, a program that has no income restrictions. Quote, the intention of this bill is to ensure Iowa's welfare programs are sustainable and remain available for the Iowans who truly need them. These programs provide a necessary safety net for low-income Iowans, and the legislature wants to make sure the Iowans receiving assistance from these programs are truly eligible. Representative Tom Gennari, a Republican from Lamar's, who ran the hearing, said in his emailed comments on the bill, quote, This bill protects the taxpayers by codifying practices to authenticate identity of applicants and requiring verification information prior to enrollment, Gennari wrote. Quote, this bill, importantly, requires Iowa's welfare program eligibility process to be merged into one single system that will verify all income information of applicants and make sure there is no fraud in the program, unquote. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly 279000 in the 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to federal data. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require federal approval. With the two Republicans on a three-member legislative panel signing off on the bill, House File 3 advanced to the full House Health and Human Services Committee. And now we turn the page to the Cedar Valley section, which, at the top of the page, has a beautiful picture of two deer in the woods. And the picture was evidently taken in the dawn or dusk hours, judging from the angle of the sun. And the two deer are standing in snow in the woods. And they both appear to be looking at the camera. The first story on the page says, Supervisors agree to one more year with current jail health care services. Story written by Maria Cooper, Dateline Waterloo. Inmates at the Black Hawk County Jail will continue to receive the same health care they've been receiving for more than two decades for at least one more year. The Black Hawk County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved an amendment to its current contract with NAFCARE, based out of Alabama, instead of lasting until 2025, as previously proposed. It is a one-year amendment. The discussion began in September after the company proposed a large price hike for health services. The contract with NAFCARE 
that ends February 1st is budgeted at just under $1.4 million. The contract would have ended in June 2025, included a 37.8% increase. Finance Director Michelle Widener said the county currently pays a base amount of $110,674 per month, plus a daily allowance of $2.60 per day for prisoner counts exceeding 250 With the one-year amendment that begins February 1st, the county will pay a base amount of $155,447 plus a daily allowance of $3.66 per day for prisoner counts exceeding 250 That would be $1.71 million for the 11 months. The original two-year option would have cost $162,733 per month until June, or $1.95 million for the year, then $169,242 per month until June of 2024, or $2.03 million for the year, and $176,012 per month until June of 2025 or $2.11 million for the year. The major causes for the price increase is the addition of nurses as well as inflation. Currently, there is a staffing level of 9.35 full-time equivalency employees. With the new amendment, there will be 11.55 full-time equivalent employees. David Crawford, Vice President of Operations at NAFCARE, said Blackhawk County is the only jail with a single-night nurse. One nurse being responsible for 300 inmates is almost unheard of, Crawford said at the January 10th meeting. He added that, due to the lack of staffing at night, workers were falling behind on things the day shift had to pick up. Having only one nurse also created workload and safety concerns. The chief executive officer of the company, Bradford McLean said having only one night nurse also created liability. The supervisors faced a February 1st deadline. If they hadn't made a decision, the contract would have been terminated. Supervisor Travis Hall said having the conversation about the full contract ending in 2025 was not realistic. Quote, to let this wither by February 1st doesn't seem like we're doing our jobs. Hall said during the January 10th meeting, quote, if we could work with NAPTHCARE to see a one-year continuance, then we can make a decision from there. At Tuesday's meeting, Hall motioned to pass the 2025 contract. Quote, if we want to have a full, holistic conversation about what sort of service we want to have in the jail, we can't have that well past the 11th hour, he said. I'm supportive of doing that Two and a half years, it takes us to the end of the year 25. In his motion, he stated the supervisors should create a committee to discuss in-house jail health care. Supervisor Chris Swartz seconded Hall's motion, but the other three supervisors voted against it. Supervisor Dan Trelka then made a motion for the amendment ending January 31, 2024, and included the addition of a subcommittee as well. All five supervisors agreed. Although they all voted to approve the contract, 
Trelka and Hall noted that supervisors cannot, quote, sit on their hands during the next year. Sheriff Tony Thompson seconded this idea. Quote, a one-year band-aid does not give us time to respond to concerns, Thompson said. Swartz and Hall will be on a subcommittee to discuss in-house jail health care services. Now we have a story about UNI's Master's in Education degree program. UNI ranks in the top 15% for online Master's in Education degree programs. This was written by Courier Staff, Dateline Cedar Falls. The University of Northern Iowa's online Master's in Education programs ranked in the top 15% nationally based on the 2023 U.S. News and World Report Best Online Programs. The UNI programs ranked 43 among 329 schools, climbing 10 places from 2022. Quote, ensuring our programs in the College of Education and across UNI educator preparation meet the needs of today's adult learners is critical, Colleen Mulholland, Dean of the College of Education, said in a news release. Quote, we're pleased that our commitment to providing numerous excellent options for these students to advance their careers with online master's degree programs is again recognized, unquote. U.S. News assessed schools in the best online programs based on a variety of objective factors, such as student engagement, faculty credentials, and services and technologies. This year, more than 1,800 online bachelor's and master's degree programs were evaluated. U.S. News has been publishing school rankings specifically for online degree programs for a decade. UNI's online master's programs included this year are early childhood education, elementary education, literacy education, art education, teacher leadership for international educators, principalship master's advanced studies certificate, superintendency advanced studies certificate, physical education, school library studies, teaching English to speakers of other languages, special education, consultant emphasis, special education, instructional emphasis, learning technologies, and instruction design. There are 13 of the 45-plus degree certificate and endorsement programs that UNI's Department of Online and Distance Education supports as entirely online or a combination of mostly online with limited in-person coursework. The first online master's programs in education were offered in 2010. To learn more about UNI's online programs, visit them at online.uni.edu. Next, we have a story written by Andy Malone. Cedar Falls Zoning Panel approves future building at Viking Road Commercial Plaza. Dateline Cedar Falls. A 10-minute meeting of the Planning and Zoning Commission meeting Wednesday ended in a favorable recommendation for the developer of the Commercial Plaza in the 920 to 940 block of Viking Road. The commissioners voted unanimously to recommend approval of a site plan for the final 6,050-square-foot building. The proposal is expected to be considered by the City Council on February 6th. 
workers are in the middle of constructing the penultimate building on the property. Developers are also trying to address standard recommendations of the city's planning and engineering divisions, like for stormwater and parking, as part of a project that's been in the works since 2016. The application is pretty cut and dry, said Chairman David Hartley. The development is nice. I drive by it every day. The plaza includes three already constructed and operating facilities, including its main centerpiece building to the south. The main building is about 55,000 square feet in size and includes notable tenants like Fit Courts, as well as Sidecar Coffee and Balance Hot Yoga Studio, businesses that recently opened there. Upon completion, the plaza will have five buildings in total. The last two commercial buildings are on the east and west sides of the property and are part of the other 30,000 or so square feet of space. If approved by the council, the shell of the final building will be constructed on the west side of the 14-acre property in the late summer for three or four tenants. Doors may possibly open in 2024. David Sund, construction manager with Echo Development Group, said after the meeting. The building currently under construction on the east side is expecting three businesses, one being Agape Performance, an expansion of the local physical therapy clinic, and the other two being undetermined, although a posted sign indicated daily dose, a shake and energy bar may be one of them, to move in and open as soon as late spring, according to Sund. The project was undertaken by High Yield, a company with well-known developer Brent Dahlstrom in the fold, and it's become a destination for those looking for health, sports, and recreation products, amenities, and services. In other business, at the abnormally short commission meeting, Hartley reached agreement with the other commissioners to hold a future discussion about the possibility of asking the council to approve reducing the number of sitting members. The commission is made up of nine people, but it recently lost two, Marty Holst and Leanne Saul. Replacements have not been named yet. And now, listeners, at this time we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 27th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Fairbank, Douglas Francis Cox, age 81 of Fairbank, passed away January 23, 2023, at his home. He was born October 14, 1941, in Waterloo, the son of Raymond and Helen Whitney Cox. Darrell grew up in rural Fairbank and spent the rest of his life in the same area. He was a graduate of the very first class of Wapsie Valley Community Schools, in 1960. Darrell was a lifelong farmer while also working at John Deere in Waterloo for 38 years, which he retired from in 1998. He married Carolyn Ann Schulte on August 19, 1961, at the United Methodist Church in Fairbank. 
Carolyn passed away March 11, 1988. A visitation for Daryl will be held at 3 o'clock until 7 o'clock p.m. on Sunday, January 29th, at Woods Funeral Home and for one hour before services on Monday at the church. Funeral services are 10 o'clock a.m. on Monday, January 30th, at the United Methodist Church in Fairbank. Interment will be at Fairbank Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the United Methodist Church or to the family for later designation. Lunch will be served following the service at Fairbank American Legion. Online condolences may be left at www.woodsfuneralhome.net. Next is Rita M. Donovan, who passed away peacefully on January 20, 2023, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Rita was born in 1932 to Raymond and Julia Hogan. She attended school in the Independence area. Rita married Richard Donovan on February 22, 1950. Rita spent most of her time taking care of her family. She worked at Chamberlain's and Satori Hospital. Rita enjoyed many hobbies. Her artwork is all over the country. She was an avid bowler and played lots of golf. Rita enjoyed spending her winters in Myrtle Beach. While there, she enjoyed golfing with family and friends. There will not be a visitation, as per Rita's wishes. Cremation has taken place, and a service will be held at a later date. Arrangements are being made with Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories at 965 Home Plaza, Waterloo, Iowa. Their phone number is 319-232-3235. Condolences may be left at www.parrotandwood.com. Now the courier lists five death notices. Emily J. Gutenkoff, 27, of Independence, died Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the Buchanan County Health Center in Independence. Arrangements for Emily are being handled with Fawcett Smith's Funeral Home in Winthrop. And Lorna D. Hieronymus, 93, of Waterloo, died Wednesday, January 25, 2023, at her home. Arrangements are being made with Locke on 4th. Janet Mangan Pierce, 69, of Jacksonville, Florida, formerly of Waterloo, died Thursday, December 15, 2022, in Orange Park. Robert Renkin, 86, of Iowa Falls, died Tuesday, January 24, 2023, at his home. Arrangements are being made with Council Woodley Funeral Home in Iowa Falls. And Leroy Rasek, 77, of Bistro, died Saturday, January 21, 2023, at Mercy One, North Iowa, Mason City. Arrangements are being made with Council Woodley Funeral Home in Dumont. That's all of the obituaries in today's Courier. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today was written by Kathy Obradovich for the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The title is Transparency is for suckers. Transparency is for suckers. That's the message loud and clear from Governor Kim Reynolds and her Republican enablers in the legislature. I'd suspect that this was another particularly idiotic manifestation of the transphobia 
that has infected Republican officeholders the past few years. But no, Reynolds and GOP lawmakers are insisting on transparency through various priority bills in the legislature while keeping the public in the dark. Everybody loves transparency as long as it's required of other people. Reynolds's recent interview with Amanda Rooker of KCCI-TV made that abundantly clear. Rooker asked Reynolds about the so-called transparency measures she is proposing for public schools. These may include ideas proposed in the past, like requiring teachers to post their lesson plans online, or school libraries posting every title on their shelves. Rooker asked if Reynolds would also seek to impose those rules on private schools that receive taxpayer funds from her education savings account proposal. Reynolds stammered, quote, Well, you know, they're held too. You know, most of this would deal with public schools, with public schools right now. So, you know, they, it would just be public schools, unquote. That last phrase is the actual answer. Only public schools would have to post course details and library titles and whatever else the governor and GOP lawmakers can think of to demand from public schools. Why not private schools? If we're going to dedicate hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to give parents a, quote, choice on where to send their kids, shouldn't that be an informed choice? Reynolds says parents can figure out for themselves, quote, but again, it's the parent that's going to be making that decision. So if they feel that the school doesn't meet their expectations or what they're looking for, then they're not going to transfer their child there, she said. So I'm going to trust parents to do the research to, you know, make the decision of what environment is best for their children, unquote. Speaking of those taxpayer dollars that will be going to possibly secretive private schools, Reynolds said she is planning to hire a private company to handle the transfer of state money to parents and oversee how the money is spent. Lawmakers will not be informed about how that would be done and what company would be in charge until after the legislation has passed. And speaking of taxpayer money, House Speaker Pat Grassley told reporters last week that the House doesn't need to send the school scholarship bill through the Appropriations Committee to examine the spending. Why not? Because House Republicans have talked about the cost among themselves in secret. Quote, I will tell you that I probably talk so much about appropriations matters in caucus. I probably drive them nuts about how much we do spend on that, Grassley said. Quote, we take this very seriously whenever we look at any sort of investment like this. And there has been significant time, not only since we got to session, but leading up to session on what potential proposals would look like. So it's not like we just started yesterday having that conversation, unquote. None of those conversations was in public, however. Neither the governor nor legislators discussed details of the current, vastly expanded scholarship plan during the campaign. Republican and Democratic caucus meetings are held behind closed doors. The Senate did hold an Appropriations Committee meeting last week, but decided to push forward with the bill without a nonpartisan fiscal analysis. The chambers could send the bill to the governor's desk as early as this week without giving Iowans time to absorb the details. Then, they'll move on to talking about transparency 
for public school teachers, tax assessors, universities, and all those other suckers. Editor's note, Kathy Obradovich is the editor of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. This next one was written by Art Cullen and appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot. Republicans are determined to test their limits. Republicans are bearing full speed ahead on their platform to shift Iowa hard to the right, and in doing so, might give Democrats the opening they sorely need. The minority party was left in a shambles following the midterm elections. The GOP controls the governor's office, both legislative chambers, and the state congressional delegation. State Auditor Rob Sand is the last Democrat standing statewide. The Republicans ran on cutting taxes, giving vouchers to students at private schools, banning abortion, expanding gun rights and use, and bringing back the death penalty. Voters are getting what Republicans think they asked for. The state is about to give away nearly a billion dollars to families of private school students. The Iowa Supreme Court is scheduled to decide whether abortion should be banned at the detection of a heartbeat. The trainer for the Cherokee School District is telling staff who want to be armed that they should shoot to kill. The public might start to realize what they voted for. Large crowds showed up last week at the Capitol to protest the voucher bill. Rural school boards feel this could be the shoe that drops. It's a hot topic on social media. The Buena Vista County Democrats just ran a big ad in the Times Pilot about vouchers. Interesting that Auditor Sand is stepping out front trying to lead the charge against vouchers, along with Democratic legislative leaders. Sand, from Decorah, thought about running against Governor Reynolds last time, but decided against it. The donor base was not fired up about burning money against Reynolds. He didn't think the time was right. Sand has arduously pursued a centrist course in hunting outfits. He obviously has found an issue that strikes a nerve among a state that traditionally put public education first. It is presumed that since the Supreme Court reversed itself and ruled that abortion can be outlawed, it will look favorably on a ban. The issue is not live for the last campaign because abortion remained legal. When it becomes illegal, voters may change. Iowans remain deeply suspicious of capital punishment. Methodists remain a force when mobilized. Many people in Cherokee and Spirit Lake, maybe not most, are armed by school training that advises you to press your problem away by pulling the trigger. In a tight statewide race, those small pockets of votes can matter. Republicans could be content to execute the $2 billion in tax cuts enacted by Governor Reynolds, but insist on overreaching. Representative Megan Jones, a Republican from Sioux Rapids, is being careful. She is hearing about the voucher stuff in Spencer and Storm Lake. So is Senator Lynn Evans, a Republican from Aurelia, who voted the voucher bill out of committee in hopes of bargaining something better than the 2.5% allowable growth for K-12 schools. Jones said last week that she was not sure there are enough votes to pass the voucher bill in its current form. The voucher bill, called School Choice, is being pressed nationwide and ads in Iowa are being financed by out-of-state interests. 
Republican leadership thinks their big electoral wins give them a mandate, yet more than 60% of the comments at statehouse hearings are against the voucher plan. Reynolds has national ambitions, no doubt. Evans and Jones are being asked to put their hides on the line as the governor surveys the 2024 presidential field. Lurking in the background, what will Senator Chuck Grassley do? He just won a six-year term. He is 89. His grandson is House Speaker Pat Grassley. If the senator decides to retire to the farm, the governor appoints his replacement. How Chuck feels and how Kim feels that Chuck feels will cover everything about Republican Party politics over the next two years. Sands has two to four years to build a coalition that includes a lot of money. Democrats need someone they can get behind. Sand won. Democratic legislative leaders need to be able to sustain the public skepticism over vouchers into other issues that matter with voters. The Iowa Supreme Court might come to their aid by making an abortion ban effective this year. And when you realize that the middle school librarian is packing a cute little derringer in her hair bun, you might begin to ask if this state is heading overboard. It all sounds good until you shoot the piano player. Our next editorial was written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times. Can anything be done to assuage rural rage? Rural resentment has become a central fact of American politics, in particular, a pillar of support for the rise of right-wing extremism. As the Republican Party has moved even further into MAGA-land, it has lost votes among educated suburban voters, but it has been offset by a drastic rightward shift in rural areas, which in some places has gone so far that the Democrats who remain face intimidation and are afraid to reveal their party affiliation. But is this shift permanent? Can anything be done to assuage rural rage? The answer will depend on two things, whether it's possible to improve rural lives and restore rural communities, and whether the voters in those communities will give politicians credit for any improvements that do take place. This week, my colleague Thomas B. Edsall surveyed research on the rural Republican shift. I was struck by his summary of work by Catherine J. Kramer, who attributes rural resentment to perceptions that rural areas are ignored by policymakers, don't get their fair share of resources, and are disrespected by, quote, city folks. As it happens, all three perceptions are largely wrong. I'm sure that my saying this will generate a tidal wave of hate mail, and lecturing rural Americans about policy reality isn't going to move their votes. Nonetheless, it's important to get our facts straight. The truth is that ever since the New Deal, rural America has received special treatment from policymakers. It's not just farm subsidies, which ballooned under Donald Trump, to the point where they accounted for around 40% of total farm income. Rural America also benefits from special programs that support housing, utilities, and business in general. In terms of resources, major federal programs disproportionately benefit rural areas, in part because such areas have a disproportionate number of seniors receiving Social Security and Medicare. 
but even means-tested programs, programs that Republicans often disparage as welfare, tilt rural. Notably, at this point, rural Americans are more likely than urban Americans to be on Medicaid and receive food stamps. And because rural America is poorer than urban America, it pays much less per person in federal taxes. So in practice, major metropolitan areas largely subsidize the countryside. These subsidies don't just support incomes. They support economies, government, and so-called health care and social assistance sector each employ more people in rural America than agriculture. And what do you think pays for these jobs? What about rural perceptions of being disrespected? Well, many people have negative views about people with different lifestyles. That's human nature. There is, however, an unwritten rule in American politics that it's okay for politicians to seek rural votes by insulting big cities and their residents, but it would also be unforgivable for urban politicians to return the favor. Quote, I have to go to New York City soon, tweeted J.D. Vance during his senatorial campaign. Quote, I have heard it's disgusting and violent there. Can you imagine, say, Chuck Schumer saying something similar about rural Ohio, even as a joke? So the ostensible justifications for rural resentment don't withstand scrutiny. But that doesn't mean things are fine. A changing economy has increasingly favored metropolitan areas with large college-educated workforces over small towns. The rural working-age population has been declining, leaving seniors behind. Rural men in their prime working years are much more likely than their metropolitan counterpoints to not be working. Rural woes are real. Ironically, however, the policy agenda of the party most rural voters support would make things even worse, slashing the safety net programs these voters depend on. And Democrats shouldn't be afraid to point this out. But can they also have a positive agenda for rural renewal? As the Washington Post's Greg Sargent recently pointed out, the infrastructure spending bills enacted under President Biden, while primarily intended to address climate change, will also create large numbers of blue-collar jobs in rural areas and small cities. They are, in practice, a form of the place-based industrial policy. Some economists have urged to fight America's growing geographic disparities. Will they work? The economic forces that have been hollowing out rural America are deep and not easily countered, but it's certainly worth trying. But even if these policies improve rural fortunes, will Democrats get any credit? It's easy to be cynical. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the new governor of Arkansas, has pledged to get the bureaucratic tyrants out of Washington, out of your wallets. In 2019, the federal government spent almost twice as much in Arkansas as it collected in taxes, de facto providing the average Arkansas resident with $5,500 in aid. So even if Democratic policies greatly improve rural lives, will rural voters notice? Still, anything that helps reverse rural America's decline would be a good thing in itself. And maybe, just maybe, reducing the heartland's economic desperation will also help reverse its political 
radicalization. Now let's turn back to reading local news from The Courier. Denver man arrested for impersonating police officer. These stories are written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls police have arrested a Denver man for allegedly pretending to be a police officer. Now real police officers are asking anyone who may have had contact with him to contact them. On Thursday, Cedar Falls officers talked to a 21-year-old, Mitchell David Thusen, who said he had been the victim of an assault. During the interview, Thusen claimed he had recently worked for the Waterloo Police Department. The following day, officers determined he had claimed to others that he was an undercover officer working for Waterloo Police on several occasions over a span of months. These acquaintances told police he had showed them a gun while indicating he was a police officer, according to court records. Cedar Falls Police contacted the Waterloo Police Department, where officials confirmed Thusen wasn't a police officer and never worked for the department. On Wednesday, police arrested Thusen for impersonating an officer, a misdemeanor. He was later released pending trial. Cedar Falls Police are encouraging anyone who had contact with Thusen, and he told them he was a police officer, to contact the department investigators at area code 319-273-8612. Next, we have two arrested for robbery in parking ramp, Dateline Waterloo. Two homeless people have been arrested for allegedly robbing a homeless man at Knife Point in a parking ramp. Waterloo police arrested Zachary Allen Gray, 22, and Rain Marie Tover, 22, on charges of first-degree robbery Wednesday. Gray was also arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia and a glass pipe found in his pocket when he was arrested. Bond was set at $30,000 each. According to court records, the victim told police he was in the basement level of the West 4th Street parking garage around 8 p.m. on Tuesday when Gray brandished a knife and told him to hand over all of his belongings or he would be stabbed. The victim gave his black Nike backpack to Tover, record state. Officers found Gray and Tover in the parking garage. The victim's Nike backpack was found nearby. Gray was found carrying a Remington brand knife, record state. Gray is awaiting trial for an October incident where he allegedly assaulted Tover while armed with a knife in the parking lot of Casey's General Store at 5226 University Avenue in Cedar Falls. Next, charges are added in the slaying of a missing New Hampton man, Elma. An Elma man attempted to hide the body of a New Hampton man he allegedly killed at his home in October, according to recently released court records. Savon Lelbert Eugene Jordan, 26, formerly of Waterloo and Charles City, is charged with first-degree murder in the death of 30-year-old Jonathan Esparza. Esparza disappeared on October 20th when he left his home for a friend's house. His remains were found on Jordan's property during a November search, according to Howard County Sheriff's deputies. Details about the crime remain elusive, but on Monday, Howard County Attorney Kevin Showerbill 
filed additional charges of going armed with intent and abuse of a corpse. The charges allege Jordan, quote, did mutilate, disfigure, or dismember a human corpse with the intent to conceal a crime. Court records allege Jordan killed Esparza with premeditation at his home on Main Street in Elma on October 20th, the day Esparza disappeared, sometime between 6.30 p.m. and 10 o'clock p.m. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 27th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of this reading or any of the other newspapers that we read around Iowa on our website, iowaradioreading.org. You can do that at any time. And now we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music